morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Sheila S., one of two, and I am an alcoholic and an addict. And this is the time that I get to say, I'm glad to be here. And then I say, I'm glad to be anywhere. Um, breathing in and out for me is a distinct improvement over where I was heading. When I get to these rooms, or as we say in Milwaukee, these tables, um, I want to explain to you how my higher power directs my life. And uh, Many of you have those little kind of blue programs, I know, and if you look carefully at your little blue program, this morning you will notice that there's a Sheila S. listed to run this meeting, right? Looks obvious, sounds obvious. You will notice two little letters next to that listing, MN. I am not from MN. I am from WI. <laughs> Once upon a time, many years ago, when I was just a baby drunk, actually not quite a sober person, I ran into Sheila Specker, whose anonymity is not too blown, but since she's listed, but she and I had the great good fortune to inhabit the same treatment center simultaneously. All right, now you can imagine what this does to the egos of a couple of drunk women physicians who are in family practice. As the obvious always happens. One was Sheila one, and since I got there first, I was. And she was Sheila two, which caused many problems in our relationship until we got well enough to figure it out. I got back to my room the first day here, or the second day, I guess, and I got this cute little message saying, Dear Sheila, can you take this meeting for me on Saturday morning? I have another meeting simultaneously, and if you take it, we won't even have to change the program. <laughs> so here I am. That's my higher power for you. Um, I think that I would like to do, Mary and I have just talked this over, and we'd like to do this in a very traditional format. Um, and what we would, will be doing is a standard hybridized AA meeting. Steve, how are your eyes this morning? Okay, we can yeah, we can use yours. I definitely book. Um, can we start the? Okay. Thank you very much. Humility. Let's start the meeting with a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Steve, would you please read how it works? Hi, my name is Steve. I'm an alcoholic and addict. This is how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 
Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. Now I'd like to introduce Mary, who is a member of Al-Anon, and she's going to be reading from the language of letting go. Hi, I'm Mary. I'm codependent. And uh, our topic for today is honesty. And along with, um, I thought this dovetailed nicely with the talk last night, too, because it's called Honesty in Relationships. We can be honest and direct about our boundaries and relationships and about the parameters of a particular relationship. Perhaps no area of our life reflects our uniqueness and individuality in recovery more than our relationships. Some of us are in a committed relationship. Some of us are dating. Some of us are not dating. Some of us are living with someone. Some of us were, some of us wish we were dating. Some of us wish we were in a committed relationship. Some of us get into new relationships after recovery. Some of us stay in the relationship we were in before we began recovering. We have other relationships, too. We have friendships, relationships with children, with parents, with extended family. We have professional relationships, relationships with people on the job. We need to be able to be honest and direct in our relationships. One area we can be honest and direct about is the parameters of our relationships. We can define our relationships to people, an idea written about by Charlotte Cassell and others, and we can ask them to be honest and direct about defining their vision of the relationship with us. It is confusing to be in relationships and not know where we stand, whether this is on the job, in a friendship, with family members, or in a love relationship. We have a right to be direct about how we define the relationship, what we want it to be. But relationships equal two people who have equal rights. The other person needs to be able to define the relationship, too. We have a right to know and ask. So do they. Honesty is the best policy. We can set boundaries. If someone wants a more intense relationship than we do, we can be clear and honest about what we want, about our intended level of participation. We can tell the person what to reasonably expect from us, because that is what we want to give. How the person deals with this is his or her issue. Whether or not we tell the person is ours. We can set boundaries and define friendships when those cause confusion. We can even define relationships with children if those relationships have gotten sticky and exceeded our parameters. We need to define love relationships and what that means to each person. We have a right to ask and receive clear answers. We have a right to make our own definitions and have our own expectations. So does the other person. Honesty and directness is the only policy. Sometimes we don't know what we want in a relationship. Sometimes the other person doesn't know. But the sooner we can define a relationship with the other person's help, the sooner we can decide on an appropriate course of conduct for ourselves. The clearer we can become on defining relationships, the more we can take care of ourselves. We have a right to our boundaries, wants, and needs. So does the other person. We cannot force someone to be in a relationship or to participate at a level we desire if he or she does not want to. All of us have a right not to be forced. Information is a powerful tool, and having the information about what a particular relationship is, the boundaries and definitions of it, will empower us to take care of ourselves in it. Relationships take a while to form, but at some point we can reasonably 
expect a clear definition of what that relationship is and what the boundaries of it are. If the definitions clash, we are free to make a new decision based on appropriate information about what we need to do to take care of ourselves. Well, I think that's enough relationship words. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. As you all know, this is a joint AAL-ON meeting, and what I'd like to do is say a few words of, of my own about honesty, and then we can use any format you wish. Uh, usually I pick on someone who looks like they're about to nod off right after I finish speaking. And so those of you who are trying to snooze and catch up, beware. Any eyes at half-mast are... Good signals for me. And I would be glad to see some Al-Anons at the, at the microphone as well. As a matter of fact, I'm equally likely to pick on you guys. And those of you who know me know I know who you are. <laughs> so for my own purposes, I have to say that I have the, the great good fortune to be working with other alcoholics and addicts. Um, how that happened is some kind of mysterious process that I had very little to do with. Uh, and my patients often say to me things that I said when I sobered up, which keeps it very fresh in my mind. One of the, the common scenarios I run into with newcomers is that they look at me and with a, a straight and level gaze, no sweaty palms or anything, say to me the same thing I used to say, which is, I don't know how those drugs get in my urine. I mean, like, I, and I really did say that, actually. I said that from a position of, your, of moderately severe compromise. Having recently hallucinated in withdrawal, that made it quite non-credible. As a matter of fact, later I was kind of surprised they didn't just kind of drop a net over me. Although they may have, I'm not sure. So honesty starts out being a thing of great difficulty for most alcoholics, and specifically for me. The problem that I've had with my recovery is that when I was being dishonest at first, I really wasn't very much aware of it. Because of all the people I needed to not tell I was alcoholic and addicted, I needed to not tell myself that uh, for reasons that are obvious. Normal people don't take drugs out of patients' pillboxes, and normal people who are my height and 40 pounds lighter than I am now don't usually drink two-thirds of a quart of scotch in a sitting or a laying down, depending on how you look at it. I mean, normal people don't have a list of 16 pharmacies that they sort of space out cleverly. I'm computer illiterate, but that's the only reason I didn't computerize the random selection. Um, normal people don't have friendly phone calls from the Department of Regulation and Licensing from the state of Wisconsin. And... When I suddenly woke up, like about three months post-withdrawal in my recovery, it occurred to me that, you know, I had left behind a trail of what could kindly be called disinformation. But the problem was that I was the biggest victim of all of that. I really believed that stuff. And when my sponsors and my AA friends and my addictionist wanted me to tell the truth, I was in that ridiculous position of not having a clue what they were talking about. And of course, my first offense, and this will sound very familiar to Elements, my first offense was to get really mad because when I'm afraid I don't function well, and when I'm angry and defensive, I'm energized. I mean, I can puff up to three times my height. Well, maybe three times my width. I don't know. Anyway, I can really be self-righteous. And when I'm self-righteous, that prevents me from receiving any incoming information. So my usual response would be to say, what do you mean, how is this treatment different from the last treatment? Or things like that. Over the years of my recovery, it's become a little bit easier to have a relationship with myself. When I started out in recovery, I didn't think there was anybody home at my house. And I thought that I was of little value and I didn't, my brain wasn't working very well. And I thought that I had minimal skills in many ways. And as 
I grew more confident when I could remember the things that I'd done right, things improved. And in the past three or four years now of my recovery, I've been on a, a joint journey of exploration uh, in my department of the interior with a, an appropriate person. And that's changed my view of honesty. I would encourage those of you who are early in the program to continue this trudging journey, as Burns calls it, and the big book calls it, because when we start out, we really don't have a clue about what's really happening inside and what really drives us, at least I don't think. You know, most of what drove me early on was an urge to use drugs and alcohol and a desire to not know that I had an urge to use drugs and alcohol. So as time has gone on, my honesty has improved. I am far, far from perfect. Now, when my patients tell me they don't lie to me, I look at them and say, boy, I sure do. And that usually <laughs> changes the nature of things. Some of it is thoughtless, and much of it is defensive, and all of it stands in the way of me taking care of what's really broken. Because as you've heard in this meeting before, you know, uh, you can't fix things outside of reality. Or as one of my mentors said, you know, alcoholism is the pursuit of happiness in the absence of reality, and recovery is the pursuit of happiness in the presence of reality. So I'm very glad to be here today, and I'm glad to be working on this topic. Um, and... Does anyone have a burning desire to, as the Texans say, to come to the podium, or should I sort of lubricate things here? By anyone want to speak? John. Hi, family. I'm John. I'm an addict, uh, and I'm also a member of Al-Anon for 12 years. Uh, thanks for your qualifications. It was really hard for me to be honest, uh, being a, a drug addicted gay physician in a very straight community, um, and lying about everything anyway it was hard to be honest. I mean, uh, I did so many drugs, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. Uh, but what happened was I said to myself, I'm gonna hold on for the ride for my life, and it can't get any worse. And, uh, it got better. And, you know, when I came here, people helped me. I was a mess. Um, and, uh, as, as long as I work the steps, the honesty gets better. Sometimes it can't be complete. I mean, I cannot go to my home group, Alan on, uh, where half the people are my patients and it's the, there is one gay Alan on, but, and it's, um, it's in my town, it's in my hospital and talk about my boyfriend and I try and say significant other. Uh, sometimes I say girlfriend. Uh, and I know I'm lying, and the people who know me know I'm lying, uh, but I have to weigh things out. And, and um, honesty is so important as long as I'm honest with myself. And, you know, I was lying to myself for the first two, three, four years clean, uh, and, and then it just didn't cut it. And like Sheila said, there are times when I'm not honest, and the worst is if I don't know I'm not being honest. And luckily I have friends now, thanks to the 12 steps in both Al-Anon and AA, who say, hey, John, uh, you know, get get straight. I don't mean straight like that, but get uh, get honest, and and it works. The program has saved my life. Um, uh, <clears throat> I had a, a few horror shows happen, and because people said to me, "Get off your ass and just think of where you were when you were shooting coffee," I'm able. I was able to thank the higher power, both with my relationship problems and with um, <clears throat> AA and NA problems, you know, uh, I, I was able to thank the higher power for, for the gift of the horrible horror shows I was having. And uh, I didn't realize I was being honest, and that probably saved my life. So I try and listen to other people, uh, and it's hard. <laughs> and thank you for loving me, and I love you all. I'd like to hear from Mary Elizabeth... Yes. I think I've just destroyed a budding friendship. <laughs> I certainly wasn't expecting this. Um, 
I came to Al-Anon not willingly um, when my husband wanted to recover before I before I um, intervened in his life, which I think has caused him to resent me for the rest of his. Um, I just figured things would get better someday. I held on to that hope until he walked out of my life two years ago and decided to live with one of his nurses, which was very, very difficult for me. Um, I'm the mother of his four children, and it's caused... I'm shaking like crazy. <laughs> it's been very difficult for me to get on with my life because I'm in a very small community. But I sought help, not only from my higher power, but I, I went to therapy and I see a psychiatrist. And I had, I had always grown up feeling like I was inadequate in many ways. And, um, of course, the way I was treated in my alcoholic relationship reinforced that on a regular basis. Um, I'm really glad to be here. At first, last year, I came on a scholarship, and I really wasn't sure if I was supposed to be here or not. But I grew up in the family of addiction. I intervened on my husband because I thought I was saving his life. Um, I stuck with him with the hope of things getting better. And um, it's the strangest thing is my life has gotten so much better since he's not living with me. And uh, I remember all the years of going to the doctor for stress-related illnesses. And um, all my doctors, even in my local town, would tell me that the reason that you're having stomach problems and anxiety attacks and this and this and this is because you have too much stress in your life. And I just wanted to know how to get rid of the stress. And not one of them mentioned that maybe your stress was your husband. Um, how would I know? I mean, he was supposed to be getting better. And so I finally decided to work on me a couple of years ago, the year before he left. I thought, you know, I'm getting to the point where I, I don't like me at all. Um, I was trying so hard to make this man happy in every way you can possibly imagine. I, I just figured that I could do it, you know. I mean, when you love somebody, you figure that you can really make a difference. And um, all of a sudden, um, at one of my, one of my um, discussions with my psychiatrist about my depression, um, she said something to the effect of, well, the reason you're depressed is because you've been under oppression for so long. And we had talked about my childhood because I was in a very dysfunctional family. And I knew I was dysfunctional because my husband kept telling me how sick my family was. And um, and uh, she she um, when she said that, I wasn't quite sure what she meant because I didn't know exactly what oppression was. And when she explained it to me, I was... So happy, because <laughs> there was a reason why I had felt the way I had been feeling, um, and that there was hope. I wasn't going to, my depression wasn't going to go from just spring to all year round. It was going to eventually go away. And so I went home and I, I remember I was, I was so happy about this that I, I had to tell my, my husband at the time, and I said, I said, you know, I'm so glad I finally got to talk to this psychiatrist, because she was a woman and she understood me. And she said, well, what'd you learn? And I'm not thinking at all, looked at him, I said, I realize the reason I'm depressed is because I've been oppressed for most of my life, at least 25 years. And he just kind of stood back and he looked at me and I was like, you know, waiting for a response. And all he could say was, do you realize that you spent most of that time with me? And I tell you, I, I was speechless because it never really dawned on me. I was just so happy that I was finding help for me. And... um the hardest thing about my getting healthy and taking care of myself is that taking care of myself because the way I grew up and the way I've lived my life is I am the perfect people pleaser. If um, if anybody wants something, I want to rescue them. And in the last couple of years, I've realized that um, if I don't rescue me and I go out to rescue them, all of a sudden me starts to disappear again. And um, being here has been really beneficial because where I live is very, very small. I'm in a, in a town five miles from the Canadian border where if I don't know who people are, they know who I am or they know who my children are. So being able to speak openly about my problems with the addict is very hard. He's, he's like the local hero, and he's very good at his job and um, well-respected, and I'm the invisible person. But here I can be myself, and I'm really grateful to everybody for that, especially those have 
who have let me know that they're, they're glad to see me each year because um, my 14-year-old has come with me this year and last year, and next year is in Toronto, which is a reasonable drive from me, probably a day's drive from me, and I'm hoping to bring the two younger siblings. My oldest is going off to university, which is hard. But I know that all of us in the family that is still left intact have hope for our future and being real and honest. So, thank you. Anyone interrupt and, and volunteer up here anytime? Craig. Hey everybody, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm a alcoholic and a member of Al-Anon. I'm a double winner. And uh, both of these topics kind of come home to me. My first meeting I ever went to was in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, it was on honesty. And that, that must have meant something to me because I can remember every minute of it. Uh, because these people were talking about things that I said, I wouldn't even tell my best friend that shit. I mean, I, you know, and, and I, I just, uh, I was just amazed. And, um, after a, a few weeks of, or a few months of, of some treatment and, and, uh, meetings, uh, I remember I thought one day I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with my wife. I'm gonna try it. And I was just scared to death because that is something that I had never done. And, uh, my wife and uh, she was a second marriage and, and, uh, we were really good drinking buddies and, and, uh, we did everything together. We were like glue, you know, it was like Siamese twins walking around, you know, wherever we went, you know, the other one was right beside and, and, uh, that, that was all I could think of is, is, is that I would lose her, you know, that this would be the one thing. And, um. So I, I can still remember the day sitting there talking, sitting in the kitchen and just sweating that I'm going to be honest with her. I'm going to talk to her about sex <laughs> and, uh, you know, the old taboo word. And uh, it was pretty amazing what happened, you know. And But, boy, I, you know, when I think about it, somehow or other I had that third step in, in hand, you know, that I really believed for the first time that I could put myself in a vulnerable position and, and be okay. And uh, it was pretty remarkable uh, what came out of that. So then we started, uh, I started saying, well, gee, why don't you go to some, some uh, we'll go to some couples meetings. And um, so we went to one, two couples meetings, and on the way home one day, uh, she was just crying after this meeting. And and, uh, and I said, uh, you know, well, what's wrong, you know? And, and, and she finally, she said, well, I just realized that I'm sicker than you. <laughs> And, uh, she never, she never did, uh, get into Al-Anon. And, uh, but I was still able to tell her that I loved her, but at the same time that I was able to leave her. And I went to the meetings and I did the things I had to do. And she started this, well, why are you going, where are you going? And, and, uh, and I just said, I gotta do it. And she never went to Al-Anon. And, um, then, um, about five years later, uh, I wanted to go on, she wanted to go to a warm vacation. So I went to one of the, I found one of these sober vacations and, uh, said, I'm going. And do you want to go? And she said, no. And we, I said, well, I'm going anyhow. You know, and I was going to take care of myself. And I said, I just, I need to do it. Well, she finally succumbed that she would go. And while she was there, she caught the disease of alcoholism, which she had the whole time. And, um, it's been an interesting ride since then uh, of this honest relationship that, that we have. Uh, um, I didn't have a lot of pride. I stayed out of her life in, in that relationship uh, while she was drinking. And never, for whatever reason, I don't know how I learned it, don't complain, don't do anything, just let it go. And uh, the hard part now has, has been since she's been sober and um, trying to uh, stay out of her sobriety. And, uh, it's been, been an interesting ride. Uh, I also have a son who's just getting out of Hazelden right now. And, uh, this has been a, this has been a real struggle for me because we were in a business together. And, uh, he took a lot of money and, uh, put it in a lot of precarious situations. And, and yet I, you know, I love him very much and I felt really badly for him. And, uh, 
uh, I still remember um, telling him, you know, I said, I feel awful for what's going on here, and, and it's terrible, but it, and it breaks my heart. And then I got to thinking, God, what a terrible load to put on someone, you know. And, uh, and Al-Anon has taught me that my happiness and my serenity does not depend on another person. You know, that, that I have developed through AA and Al-Anon an inner peace here that, that allows me to let these people go and, and let them go on their own way. And uh, my wife is, I don't see her in this meeting right now, but she's been to a lot of these meetings. And uh, uh, the first one she went to was in Scottsdale, and she hid in the room for five days. And uh, it's kind of neat to see her roaming around and meeting people. And, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm uh, really happy to have been here. And, and our relationship is is we we don't do a lot of we don't we do a, a lot of things separately. She has her own program. I have mine, uh, and it's been so. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I, it always occurs to me that when we begin getting honest in this program, somehow we always feel compelled to share that honesty in the most direct fashion, sometimes to people we love. At one point, I've been accused of doing therapy with a baseball bat, and I think that's an illustration of it. So there must be some learning curve in how to be both honest and kind. And uh, sometimes I get there, and sometimes I just don't make that. Um, honest with myself all remains the hardest. Barry, would you like to say a few words? Be honest. <laughs> Thank you for asking me to share, and uh, that's honest. Uh, I'm Barry Lubin. I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. And I need to be a member of Al-Anon. You see, it's really sort of neat that I, I just got in last night. I was at a <clears throat> more scientific recovery sort of meeting down in Chicago, and it just feels good to be home here. Uh, but uh, as, as I walked in, John said to me, it's AA and Al-Anon combined. And I said, ooh, God is really doing it to me. <laughs> he really is. Um, for the last uh, almost eight years, I've been real grateful to be where I am in the rooms of AA. Uh, and uh, didn't come in willingly, of course. Came into Atlanta kicking and screaming and Roger gets on my heels and uh, all sorts of things like that. But... Coming into the program, getting sober, being part of an honest life for the first time in my life gave me peace that I never knew I could have or experience. Um, but the new part that sort of happened over the last months is this need to be an Al-Anon part. Two weeks ago, I put my 20-year-old son on a plane to a treatment program, and uh, he's there, and I'll be there in three and a half weeks to do his family week with him, and it's like, I don't know if I can do this from that side. And <clears throat> they sent me a questionnaire from the treatment program about me and him. And like on the bottom of one page, the last question on the bottom of the page was, what has been the most significant problem the last six months? What has been your most significant problem these last six months? And, of course, I wrote Josh's drug and alcohol problem. And then I turned the page. And the first question on the next page was, other than your child's problem, what has been your most significant problem? Was, and it was like, God, they pissed me off so bad. How did they know that? But they did. Um, <clears throat> then in the packet, there were all these things about Al-Anon. And like, I don't know about this. I re you know, once I got past <clears throat> my own denial of my disease, I've sort of worn my recovering drug addict and alcoholic with pride because I am proud and I am grateful uh, to be where I am today. Very grateful uh, that I lived through the using part of my disease and I came into this fellowship uh, in a very gentle, wonderful way. And I've had the opportunity to stay in this fellowship in a very special, wonderful way. And I've stayed on to work with people coming in uh, into Atlanta the way I did. And, and it's been a real wonderful ride for me. Uh, honesty, God, you know, it's always in my head, in our secrets, liar, sickness. And, and I can't go back there anymore. And I really don't think I have any or many anymore. And I'm real grateful for that, too. Uh, but this Al-Anon piece is scaring the shit out of me. 
It really is. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you detach. I don't know how you do that. Uh, but I'm going to try and learn. But I don't know. It's tough, you know, that Jewish mother that lives inside of this Jewish father. It's really tough. <laughs> it's really tough. And then when I talk to my own mother, she tells me what I did wrong, and that's why it happened. So, you know. <laughs> but thanks for having me, Sarah Steele. Thanks, Barry. I guess that brings to mind only one thing, and that's one of the things that keeps me going on a daily basis uh, is the the concept that I'm really not responsible for anyone but myself. And I think I probably learned it at this meeting some time ago. It occurred to me, or someone told me, that I have a higher power, and the people I work with and the people in my family have their own higher powers, and it's not me. So I think that's kind of my way of detaching. I may make plans and recommendations, and they will have to make choices and take action under direction of their higher power. And I think that helps some, at least for me. Um, My name is Dick. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I don't want to say a lot because I've got a slot this afternoon. but I just want to say that, uh, in my experience at IDA, this, uh, these early bird meetings have been, uh, rich. It's one of the opportunities for, uh, those of us who don't get a chance to speak anywhere else can get up and talk. And several things have been triggered, uh, have, have triggered my urge to raise my hand. And one was, uh, was your share, Mary Elizabeth. Uh, I, uh, it takes an incredible amount of courage, uh, once called upon even to come up and 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 share uh, the uh, the extent of of our recovery, which you just kind of as we recover in this program, we are able to to handle things that uh, used to baffle us and we and and damn near killed me. Uh, and I think relationships and honesty are are some of those things. My my whole life as a alcoholic urologist practicing in Minneapolis was a life of walls. I had walls between my family and and uh, the other relationships that I had. I had walls between my my practice and my friendships. I had and I, I built those walls and I and I maintained those that separateness um, with I mean I, I damn near needed a computer to do it. Uh, but it, it was really a, a tough life uh, to, to live a life uh, with smoke screens and mirrors and and uh, to hide behind walls and and i I became a master at it i uh I became such uh a master at it that it slopped over into my recovery and uh I still have a tendency to hide behind walls and to, uh, use smoke screens and mirrors in relationships uh, my al anon group when I moved to St Louis is called the letting go al anon group and it made it met at st peter's church at uh at seven o'clock on thursday and 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 that was a really valuable meeting for me because the letting go al anon group was a was a real strong group it had been going on for quite a while and now the al anon meeting I attend in st louis is the is one at the Lindell club at noon on tuesday and uh, my sponsor my al anon sponsor's name is joe and and getting honest in the area of relationships is uh has been one of the salutary uh, benefits of my sobriety, but it didn't come easy. And I put my uh, recovery from alcoholism and not drinking one day at a time, thank you very much, family, as an excuse for for not, you know, developing some of those relationships and 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 working boundaries and and doing some of the things that we learn in Alan on. And I, uh, after five years of sobriety, left a marriage. I left a wife of 27, 8 years, and uh, that was really, really uh, tough. And then going through the divorce three years later was really tough. And I had an Al-Anon sponsor in Minneapolis when that happened. And if it hadn't been for Al-Anon, I wouldn't have been able to survive that. And now to to do direct one-on-one relationship with my kids is is still hard to do. Uh, I've got a daughter, Margaret, who lives in St. Paul, and a son, Carl, who still lives in Minneapolis. And when I come up here, I expect them to flock in here and see what a great job Dad's doing in IDAA, and and they've got under other agenda uh, issues, you know. So 
to, but to, to, to deal with Margaret and her son Tyler and her husband uh, David and to deal with my son Carl uh, and to deal with my uh, other two children is really requires uh, direct uh, things that Mary talked about in, in that in that relationship piece she, she wrote. And I didn't know how to deal directly. And the Al-Anon program and, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous being removed from the gravitational pull of alcohol uh, long enough for me to be able to uh, see how I'm supposed to handle relationships is what is what's been the gift of, of my recovery. And I think you know after we after we get some distance from alcohol, after I got some distance from alcohol, then I'm called on to to work relationships. And and that's why in this uh, Al-Anon meeting that I go to, it's, a, it's called a crossover meeting in in uh, St. Louis. One week it's we read the AA tradition uh, for that step. And the next week, week we read the Al-Anon tradition for that step. And we use the 12 and 12. So one week it's AA step two, and the next week it's Al-Anon step two. And the next, the next week it's AA step three, the next, then it's Al-Anon step three. And a lot of people who are alcoholic get in there and they hear the Al-Anon uh, steps read. And, and uh, there's been a really rich infusion of uh, Al-Anon into the lives of several uh, recovering people. And I just can't say enough about how valuable... My Al-Anon sponsor, Joe, is in my life and how valuable Al-Anon is in my life. My AA sponsor's name is Dean, and I go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for my alcoholism. But but relationships and being honest in relationships and and dealing with uh, uh, having been married and having left a a relationship after a number of years has has required uh, me to become uh, more and more honest in my life, and it's been rich. Thanks. Sorry, I don't know your name. Kathy. Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm an alcoholic. And um, when I found out what the theme was, AA and Al-Anon together, I, I was sitting there going, well, what about that? And I thought, well, wait a minute. Al-Anon was extremely important to me getting into the program because that's how I came into AA. But once I came into AA, I didn't stop going to Al-Anon. I just don't go very often at all. And, um, um, like, what it was like, I was... Um, an alcoholic and using left-handed cigarettes and um, and in a marriage with a man who I couldn't I just couldn't stay in that marriage any longer and I was um, someone directed me to a piece of non AA approved literature but it was very important and when I was reading this book it was like describing my whole life and it kept saying if you're in a relationship like this there is a 12-step program for you somewhere well of course it couldn't be AA and Elanon was there is a program too so I started going there and um, you know told them tried to tell them about my problem with him and they said no 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 no." and so I really have to thank the people in Al-Anon that let me know that and um, you know I kept going I figured then you know the problem was my inner child needed to be healed or something like that and so I went to ACOA and um, then I started going to therapy and you know all these things I want to keep a long story short well at least I think it's a long story but um, then finally Someone said, well, why aren't you going to AA? And um, I started to go. But, you know, before this happened, I was a, I was a, an uh, alcohol, or my, my ex-husband, his um, main drug was food, and he was a very big man. And um, so here I was, uh, uh, an addict and an alcoholic, going to Al-Anon to try to make a food addict better, and it wasn't working, you know, and I got crazier. <laughs> and, um, but... And then I um, started going to AA, and God put a little series of miracles in my life. I, I was not in treatment, and um, I was um, just two months in the program, and I ended up at Boca Raton. I mean, I did not know any physicians like the weekend before, and I was I was there. Walked into the newcomers meeting, and like that was the first thing I did. I thought, boy, they have a lot of newcomers here because you know the room set up for 700, 800 people. So then I found out I was part of the entertainment for that night, but <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't know that. I would have had Kentucky Fried Chicken, not the chicken they had on the plate. But um, and then you know, I, for the most part, I don't go to Al-Anon very often at all. But it's like every time I get that little interface with it, there's some principle that I don't understand that I need to know better. That the Al-Anon way just helps me understand it. I had, you know, I thought. Being in AA and being clean would, like, get me husband number two. I'm still between husbands and, um, you know, try to make things happen that probably shouldn't be. And I had just um, 
stopped seeing somebody that I thought was probably it. And um, a girlfriend invited me to uh, a um, Al-Anon um, um, convention that was being held in my hometown. And, you know, it was it was nice. And I looked at one of the little workshops they were going to have, and it was... Um, the title of it was Expectations Are Premeditated Resentments. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, if I like somebody, I'm like picking out china patterns before the first day, you know. <laughs> I want to know which engraver to use. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I had expectations that didn't turn out my way. But you know what? They turned out God's way. And, you know, and I would have definitely needed, I'm pretty sure, Al-Anon to stay in a relationship with this other person on a very regular basis. And, you know, I've been saved from that. So God's doing for me what I could not do for myself. You know? <laughs> so I'm having a great time here. And um, Minneapolis is a wonderful city. If I had to live here, I know I'd have to deal with winter, but I, I think I could handle handle that. So thank you. Thanks, Kathy. Hal? Thank you, Sheila. My name is Hal Marley. I'm a grateful alcoholic. I have a friend in the State Department, foreign service officer, attends a regular State Department meeting every day at noon. But he wants to, it's a closed meeting, a meeting, but he wants to talk to us something other than the suggested topic he will say, as I say to Sheila, with the chair's permission, my remarks are going to be tangential to your central thrust. <laughs> I want to talk about Alan and <clears throat> As you know, most uh, A conferences, the Al-Anon speakers on Saturday morning. My sponsor told me early in the game, don't miss the Al-Anon talk. A lot of A's miss them. It'd be about a third of the people in the Al-Anon talk to the regular A's. But I've never missed a Saturday morning A talk. And I've been privileged with some of the senior citizens in the audience of knowing Elsa Chamberlain, Chuck's uh, wife, who was, many, many of us thought Elsa had a stronger spiritual program than Chuck. Anyway, she had a wonderful Al-Anon talk on release with love. And there was Ramona, old Indian AA from Oklahoma, and Buck Newsom, God bless, they're all passed on now. Buck was a World War II piloto. He was the number one male Al-Anon speaker back in the 60s and 70s. Anyway, I never missed their talks because I got a lot of spiritual guidance from these Al-Anon talks. And I heard Elsa talk about ODAT, so I asked what it was, and I found it was the daily Al-Anon book, and so I got that. And added that to my morning reading, and a lot of spiritual help from ODAT. At the bottom of each page is a quote from some famous person. I remember sometime in June, there's a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous philosopher. Friedrich had this to say about resentment. He said, No power on earth consumes a man more completely than the passion of resentment. No power on earth consumes a man more completely than the passion of resentment. Obviously, Friedrich knew what he was talking about in terms of resentment. For those of you younger folks who have never heard of Frederick Nietzsche, he was a famous college professor, philosopher and so forth, and back in the early part of the century he had a lecture at his university, and the title of his lecture was God is Dead. He became famous for projecting this new book, God is Dead. And it was a lecture course, and the students signed up months in advance. It was the lecture hall was jammed every time he gave this lecture. He had a big blackboard back of him, he wrote that in big block letters. God is dead, signed Friedrich Nietzsche. <clears throat> so it went on for about ten years while he was there. He died, and one of his students, with a good sense of humor, went in the old lecture hall, rubbed out there and said, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> anyway, I admire the Al-Anon program and all those wonderful Al-Anon friends I've had. You know, in A, we're supposed to get rid of the sixth step of all our... Character defects, among them is resentments, of course, all these things, plus envy and jealousy, a couple of smaller resentments. Many of us get a lot of mileage out of them and don't give up. I know I have this problem most people do. We talked about the other day in the sixth step of us. <clears throat> we give up murder and rape and robbing banks and all that, these little things we hang on to. Anyway, I feel every time I see a good al speaker talk, I get a little envy and a little jealous because these al can sit around a table discussing the spiritual Values the wonderful spiritual program of the 12 steps while they're sipping a double martini. Look <laughs> at the best of two worlds, the best of two worlds. I'm still a little envious of all my wonderful Alan friends. Thank you. Thanks, Al. Come up. 
Sorry, your name? Dale. Hi, my name is Dale. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I just, I, I wanted to, uh, some of you who are in the cyber group have already heard this story. I, I apologize for boring you, but uh, my father, three weeks ago, or three months ago, Monday, was killed in an automobile accident. He was an active alcoholic, high-functioning type. Um, and it was, you know, thanks to this program and my being in it, and thanks to al that I was able to really develop a relationship with this man, even through the last through the last few years, uh, that, was, that was a real adult-to-adult, father-son kind of sharing. Um, it's tough when someone's an active alcoholic. Uh, you know, the the uh, it, it's kind of like trying to build a house on sand; it keeps shifting. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it was a real, real positive kind of experience, and that was only thanks to you know this program. Alan, I'm in a very small town, and Alan, and our town's a little tough uh, for me. I kept going to the meetings, and, and every time a controversy would arose, one of the and they're mostly women would would look over and say, "Well, you're the doctor. What do you think?" And uh, so I, I had to I had to sort of uh, take that with a grain of salt, but. You know, the ability to let go, the ability to accept him for what he was, the ability to, to say, you know, this is never going to be the kind of relationship that I would have liked it to have been. You know, there, there was still this angry child in me who wanted, you know, who wanted a father knows best kind of relationship. Uh, and, you know, the ability to, to grieve and get on with it uh, has been a real gift. And that's, you know, strictly from this program and from the program of Al-Anon. Uh, I, I have a, a, a non-drinking brother. And again, some of you have heard the story, who's an attorney, which makes settling this estate a real interesting situation, but uh, who is very angry, very hostile. Several years ago, I suggested to him that he might want to look into some adult child groups, and his response was, I have settled all of my problems. Thank you. <laughs> uh-huh, right. But, uh, but, but it's been interesting to watch this. He's the, he's the member of our family who supposedly has it all together. Uh, and yet to watch him struggle through this, the, the anger and the hostility has been... Uh, been sad uh, and, and difficult. I don't know if there's a, if there's an Al-Anon program for non-Al-Anon, but it, it, <laughs> letting letting loose of him has been even tougher. Anyway, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. Very grateful for the opportunity to speak. Okay. Um, the hall monitor here, Bud P. from Minnesota, informs me that our time is up. Um, I would like to thank you all for being here for me to keep me sober. I need every one of you to do that because I never had five-minute success alone. Um, This, maybe three, John, don't laugh. Um, It's been a real pleasure to have this joint meeting. It's been a blessing for many of us, I think. And the only problem we have, I think, is that we could have gone longer. There are many of you I'd love to hear from. So shall we close the meeting in the traditional fashion, please, using the serenity prayer. Just, just a quick announcement. Uh, these, this, this meeting is being taped. Uh, for those that you who want to know, tapes of this meeting will be available, and uh, the AA meeting on the eighth and the ninth step will start directly in five minutes. <laughs>